Welcome back to Soulmate Seasons. Today we're talking about it's not how much you make, it's how much you save. You know, it's early morning here, it's about 8 a.m. It's a cool fall November day. The leaves have just changed colors. As I look outside my kitchen window, cup of coffee in hand, I see the flutter of red and green and orange, different color leaves gusting in a gentle wind, poofs of orange like fire torches line the sky in the form of trees recently changed color and I can't help but think to myself that the world is bursting with so much great knowledge so much information such richness of thought invention and idea and I'm so excited to share some of that with you today. You know, I'm a very curious person and I know that many of you are as well. And so is my wife, Shelly. And what we're always trying to do is capture the best of thought, the best of ideas of both yesterday and today and bring them in to our lives in the present moment. With that being said, I'm really excited to share with you the experience that I had with my mother-in-law this morning in our kitchen as I sat sipping my morning coffee and having my oatmeal. She came up to me and She saw a bottle of NSAID on the table. She saw this bottle of modern medicine painkiller, an NSAID, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, which I'm taking because my shoulder recently subluxed out of the socket, which means it popped out of the socket and came back in. I have a minor labial tear, tear of one of the tendons. And so I have constant pain in my right shoulder. And the doctor recommended that I take Motrin every day in order to get the inflammation and the swelling under control. So she sees me taking this and she said, you're taking this every day? I said, yeah, that's what the doctor said to do. She said, you know, that's not very good for you. I said, I know it's not quote-unquote very good for me, but, you know, what am I supposed to do? I don't want to cause a bigger problem for myself by letting my shoulder become inflamed and constantly rubbing against itself and creating a problem that's never going to heal. I'd rather just deal with the inflammation now and get this under control so I could strengthen the shoulder and move on with my life. 
She said, you know, the problem with a lot of allopathic modern medical doctors, which we love and which we have in our family, her husband himself is, a, is an MD, a doctor, so we have nothing but respect for doctors. She said, the problem though is that doctor, he wants to fix your shoulder and he's focused on fixing your shoulder, but he doesn't necessarily care whether or not the medicine that fixes your shoulder causes a problem with your stomach lining from taking too much of the NSAID. Basically, you'll just go to another doctor who will fix the next problem that was caused by the previous solution. She said that, you know, she'd rather look at the body as a holistic system, as one system, and how can we fix the problem in one part of the body while strengthening the whole? So as opposed to the modern isolationist allopathic approach of fixing one part without respect for what's going on in the whole system, let's look at how we can repair the whole system and have that trickle down to the smaller part. So she started to brainstorm a little bit and then it hit her. Her parents were immigrants from Syria to Israel and their historical culture uh, is from Yemen. So the Yemenite Jews are considered by many to be uh, one of the most isolated Jewish communities in the world before they, uh, before the world changed as it did and everything was so connected by technology. The Yemenite Jews maintained a traditional way of life for longer than just about any other Jewish cultural subgroup. And this is seen in their traditions, which are distinct from the two major camps of Jewish tradition, which are Sephardic and Ashkenazi. The Sephardic Jews coming from Spain and the Ashkenazi Jews from Europe are the main uh, cultural groups uh, in Judaism. The Yemenite Jews, sometimes referred to as Temeni from the old Aramaic, the Yemenite Jews formed a subgroup that was separate from the two main groups because they maintained a very distinct culture, distinct traditions, distinct food. And part of this, part of this distinction was the spices. And part of this distinction was in the spices and the foods and the gastronomic traditions that they passed down from family member to family member for thousands of years. And because they were so isolated, 
living in the desert communities of Yemen, these cultural traditions in which food was medicine were passed down unobstructed in an unbroken chain for thousands of years, only recently disrupted in the last 50 or so years by the rapid spread of technology. But my mother-in-law's parents, who are in their 70s, are still privy to many of these ancient secrets. So, in order to treat the inflammation in my shoulder, she started telling me about a potion that we made together this morning. It was really, really, really fun and really exciting. And I'm happy to share it with you guys, uh, both as a, a lesson in itself for what we can gain when we extract nature's secrets from our ancestral past and also just as a fun recipe for what we can do practically today to bring healing to our lives. So what we did is we took a cinnamon stick. We took a cinnamon stick, a fresh cinnamon stick, and we combined it with fresh organic turmeric. We took black pepper. We, gr- we ground it and mixed it into this mixture. We took clove, fresh garlic, and we mixed all of these ingredients together in a pot of boiling water. Mixed it, and then right now we're allowing it to sit. So, again, cinnamon stick, clove, turmeric, black pepper, garlic, cardamom. All of these in their fresh, organic forms mixed together in a pot of boiling water and we're now allowing it to sit and as we allow it to sit the water is becoming gold so you may have heard about gold milk which is some form of this mixture cooked into milk and it makes the milk cold uh, the milk gold and you you are able to really suck the the marrow so to speak out of all of these nutrients and when you eat this mixture it's important to eat it with some oil and that can be olive oil or the oil from nuts almonds walnuts, cashews, because that oil will bind with this mixture and allow your body to properly absorb this mixture. Now, this is the same mixture that constitutes the ancient Yemenite chai. So chai tea, which today you can find 
on a mass consumer scale is a very, very diluted, uh, non-organic, commercialized form is based in this same idea. Cinnamon, clove, garlic, turmeric, cardamom, black pepper, and milk taken together in a very concentrated form will produce these amazing, amazing health benefits, namely for the purposes of healing my injured shoulder, the anti-inflammatory properties and the pain-relieving properties, the turmeric, this beautiful, beautiful orange vegetable, which looks like some cross between a carrot and, and a membrane, beautiful orange and, and like a sunset. This beautiful vegetable has anti-inflammatory properties and the clove has pain-relieving properties. So in uh, ancient Yemen, when somebody would have dental procedures, they would chew the clove and it would numb the mouth. The same exact properties can transfer to the rest of the body. The turmeric has anti-inflammatory properties among many other uh, healing properties. And when, when put with some oil and some black pepper creates a, a soluble solution which is beautifully absorbed by the body and which you know I will now drink throughout the day in order to naturally deal with the pain and inflammation in my shoulder. And I'm gonna check in with you guys periodically to let you know about how this experiment in holistic medicine is going. My mother-in-law told me that her grandmother, well into her 90s, was healthy and happy and thriving. And she credits part of this to the fact that she would consume this mixture in the form of chai on a daily basis and all of the beautiful healing properties of this wonderful mix of, of vegetables and spices was a part of her life. We see the same concept in the way that our ancestors used to make and eat soup. You know, soup today is often made with bouillon. Bouillon is a f kind of a flavor uh, crystal that you put into hot boiling water and it gives a flavor of chicken stock or beef stock or whatever other type of soup flavor you want. But my grandmother used to make soup not with a, a flavor crystal, but with bones. Something that I've had great uh, success with myself is buying bones for the marrow. So you can go to your store. You know, I've seen it at a lot of uh, health food markets and a lot of, um, you know, butcher shops. And they have bones that they sell for the marrow. And what I like to do is I like to cook the marrow out of the bones by putting the bones on a baking tray 
putting them in the oven at a high heat, about 450 degrees for about four hours. And then when they are really, really well cooked, I take these bones and I drop them into soup, drop them into boiling water, and I cook that boiling water for somewhere between 12 and 24 hours. And by the end of this period, the nutrients from the marrow and the fats from the marrow which in which are locked all of these beautiful nutrients have seeped into the water and are now locked in the water and then I'll add vegetables to my heart's content onion garlic carrots potato broccoli anything that I feel like eating tomatoes zucchinis and I'll just let that cook for another two or three hours and by the end of that I have this soup stock which is truly truly a health stock because it's got all of the nutrients from the marrow and as you guys know the bone marrow is the starting point for all cellular growth and life it's from the marrow that new blood cells are generated in our body on a daily basis. The marrow contains the essential root of the uh, process through which blood cells are made. So in order to repair itself, our body needs the very uh, amino acids, the very building blocks that are found in this marrow. And our ancestors, you know, the the so-called quote-unquote, greatest generation, that wonderful, wonderful, rich and hearty generation that carried our country through World War II and served our country and then built our country into the economic powerhouse that it is today. They were hearty and healthy in body, mind, and spirit. I believe in no small part because they were eating soup, you know, chicken soup or beef soup when they were sick not for the flavor or because it was just hot water but because it had this rich marrow base and you know you'll see that this is coming back in some parts of our culture where you can buy bone broth soup it's also very big in chinese medicine where this ancient secret has also not been lost but it it really reminds me of this uh chai tea turmeric anti-inflammatory potion that we talked about earlier in this podcast and reminds me that such secrets of nature's past are locked in our ancestors and locked in the narrative of history and if we just rely only on the wonders and marvels of modern medicine which are indeed great and amazing We'll forget that many of the most important compounds that are found in these modern medicines are simply isolated forms of ancient secrets that are distilled down, patented, and then packaged so that they can be sold to you at a higher cost. Uh, That higher cost comes not only in the form of price, but in the form of possible health risks associated with, uh, you know, the pills and the fact that, you know, a pill, when you you take it, might fix one problem but cause another. 
in a way that, you know, these food compounds, which are a little bit closer to nature, might spare you. And that brings me to another really, really important concept that I love, which is that the closer something is to nature, often the more healthy it is for you. So we see this in in marketing of food. Basically, if you buy local, the food has to travel a shorter distance from farm to table before you consume it than if you buy something that's produced across the country or across the world. In order to transport food across the country or across the world, in many cases, there are preservatives added. It's refrigerated for long periods of time. It's in some cases, like with tomatoes, the tomatoes are started on their journey green and they become red by the time they get to you, not by a natural ripening process, which brings out the natural essence and natural health benefits of the tomato and, and the carotene in the tomato, but by a, a special uh, chemical process that makes them red in color, but not through natural means. You know, when you transport something a long distance, you have to make sure that it's going to last, that it's not going to perish along the journey. and. That leads to all sorts of tricks of the trade. In many cases, you know, the things that start off in in other countries might be subject to different chemicals and all sorts of things that we might not think about, that we might not be privy to. You know, the, the further something is away from source and from, from our local environment, the more chances there are for it to be tampered with Uh, either in a well-meaning way or in a sinister way. You know, people might not be aware that some of the pesticides they're using are are harmful or they just might not care. You know, um, it reminds me of a story of uh, somebody was telling me that he lived in, uh, you know, Puerto Rico and people were growing coffee. And uh, during certain seasons, the coffee would be swarmed with bugs. And the local farmers who depended on this coffee for their livelihood, they weren't worried about regulations. They would start going out there and start spraying, getting the bugs off of their coffee crop, which they needed to turn into cash just to live, to feed for their families. And you know, if this is far away from you, if you live in New York or California and you're eventually consuming this coffee, you don't know what happened to it when it was in uh, Puerto Rico or Brazil or Colombia or wherever it was. You know, you don't know. You don't know what the local farmers had to go through, what pressures they faced when they were just thinking in the moment, how can I save my crop? It's not, I don't blame them on an industrial level. I'm not talking about some form of industrial greed or anything like that. I'm just talking about the reality that oftentimes the more something has to be processed, the further it is from us at the beginning of its agricultural journey, the more room there is, the more time there is for it to be tampered with, adulterated. So I like to 
uh, keep things uh, simple and I like to think of all the costs associated with you know perhaps buying you know the cheapest most processed form of a food in, in the store there are costs both monetary monetarily speaking and and health speaking in everything that we do and that brings us back to one of the most important things that my father always told me which is it's not how much you make it's how much you save so he was speaking in terms of the cost of money you know it's not how much money you make it's how much money you save if you make a million dollars but you spend a million and one dollars every year you're at a loss whereas if you make $80,000 a year but you manage to save $50,000 a year and, and live on $30,000 a year you're richer than that guy that made a million dollars a year but spent a million and one dollars because with the money that you saved you can begin to invest you can begin to invest your principal and live off of the interest. And this concept of it's not how much you make, it's how much you save goes for time as well as for money. Because at the end of the day, I'm saving money so that I can save time in the future so that I can be able to live the lifestyle that I want in the future when I retire, when I have kids, when I'm older. But something struck me the other day. I don't only want to save money so that I can live great in the future. I want to save time today so that I can live my dreams now, so that I can live my creative essence, my spiritual essence now. And I'll tell you what got me thinking about this. As many of you guys know, I come from a real estate background. I work in commercial real estate. I am fortunate enough to be around a lot of really, really interesting and successful business people. Some of the business people that I'm around, like the gentleman I'm about to tell you about, however, have a lot of money, but I noticed that they are rich in finance, but poor in spirit. So I went to a meeting the other day and seated at, this, seated at the center of a large wooden conference table inside a beautifully appointed conference room at which they gave the guests sparkling water and, and 
fancy food, is the CEO, the landlord of a huge office complex, talking hundreds of thousands of square feet of space in, in, a, in a great area uh, right near uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is the home of Rutgers University, a great university, a lot of vibrant uh, educational life, cultural life, intellectual life goes on around here. It means that the economic environment is also vibrant. The real estate is doing well. You have a lot of successful um, entrepreneurs and intellectuals wanting office space. And who owns this office space? This wealthy individual seated at the center of this conference table. So I'm seated at this conference table myself with some of my business partners and the owner of this hundreds of thousands of square feet of real estate, he opens the meeting and he starts talking to us about, he wants to provide my clients with the office space, the real estate space that he needs, but he needs to make money out of the deal. Of course, he's a business person. But what struck me in the way that he was talking was he didn't care what my client was doing as a business person about my client's mission, about the value that my client would add to the community. He didn't care about my client's vision for his business. He didn't care about uh, my client's business background and about anything that my client was bringing to the table. The owner of this real estate only cared about exactly how many dollars and cents he was going to extract from the deal which I get, I completely, completely, completely understand. At the end of the day, the job of a corporation legally is to create value for its shareholders, which many economists, financial analysts interpret, and I would even say rightly interpret as to create the maximum amount of profit for their enterprise. At the same time, I couldn't help but wonder whether this guy was a little bit too provincial in his thinking, that over the years in his business success during his journey in which he must have gone from a young man striving to make it into the business world into a successful real estate owner owning hundreds of thousands of square feet of property. If along his journey, he had lost something, he had become so focused on the bottom line that he didn't see that profit is created also in creating long-term business solutions that are gonna last. So it happened to be that my client represented a business that was going to be serving the senior community. 
It was a business, it is a business that provides adult medical care to people 55 and older, serving a growing need, and it's a profitable business. But he wasn't focused on the fact that because this business served a real need in the community, that by hosting this business in his real estate, he could not only make money, but he could be part of a larger business ecosystem that had a future, that had a real purpose, that was doing something good. He was only focused on how much are you going to pay me now? Starting right now, how much money am I going to make from this operation? And I get it. You know, he can't afford to think about, you know, is this... Uh, guy that's going to be my tenant, a good guy, a bad guy is, you know, what's he going to bring to the community? Maybe he can't afford to think about that because he's focused on his short-term economic needs. But as I looked at this guy across from the table and I looked into his eyes and I looked at his face, I could see that his face was shopworn. It was wrinkled. His eyes had hollowed out. They had narrowed. You know, he was losing his hair, his posture was hunched, and I I started to see that around him was this air of emptiness, and I started to really imagine that at family functions, this was the type of guy that I had seen so many times at social events uh, that I attended with my own family when I was growing up, at which you had people that were so successful in business, but the family life around them was hollow. Their family would talk to each other with such rudeness, and these business owners would talk to their wives with such rudeness, and the wives would talk to the husbands with such disdain. There wasn't a basic respect At family events, at the family level, there was actually more of a resentment. And that resentment went something like this. Dad, you're you're so rich, you have so much, but in order to get there, you were never home. Or you were always stressed out and you took that stress out on, on mom or the kids. Or you're so focused on your work that you didn't care about how I was doing in school. You didn't care about my creative projects. You only saw what you needed for your work. You only saw what you wanted with your time, which was to get rich. So you got rich at the expense of our family. And I just imagine that this guy seated across, seated across from me at the conference table was of the same type that although he was clearly in a commanding role at this conference table, that his entire energy, his posture, his essence suggested to me that the same narrow thinking that he was employing at this conference table and trying to extract maximum profit out of my client as a tenant led to the same sort of provincial narrow mindset that he employed with his family life and that 
Perhaps there was a better way. Perhaps there was a different way to live one's life so that this maxim of it's not how much you make, it's how much you save could ring true on another dimension. Perhaps it's about saving time and making each day, each month, each year along the journey to economic success rich and fulfilling in a familial value-laden sense just that it, just as it is important to save money it's important to save the years and the days during which you make that money so that when I wake up and I am 45, 55 years old like the gentleman seated across from me at the conference table that I'm not poor in memories in experiences in love in familial relationships with my children with my wife because I can see how it's very, very, very easy to focus on making money to provide for your family but in doing so to miss out on a lot of the richer moments in life. So one thing that Shelly and I have done in order to plan for and account for this problem is we've said we're going to set the hours from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. as hours during which we can do as much work as we can possibly do during the day. But that before 9 a.m. and after 6 p.m., we put the work away and we are there for each other. We don't allow ourselves to take work phone calls. We don't allow ourselves to focus on business. We make a real concerted effort to focus on the other things in our life that we love. We focus on the creative products that we have. We focus on cooking together, on caring for our family, on, you know, cleaning our house, on talking about our ideas, our dreams with each other, going for walks, doing yoga, meditating, painting, drawing, playing the piano, reading a good book that's not work-related. We focus on cultivating the other aspects of our lives. And the reason that we came up with this system during which we had to make a hard stop at 6 p.m. and a hard start at 9 a.m. for work is because at a certain point in growing my business, I was working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Literally, whenever I had a free moment, I was working. And what this meant is that whenever Shelly talked to me about something fun or creative, I started to feel like 
that was taking away from the time I had to work for us, from the time I had to make us money. So instead of seeing that beautiful, creative, earnest conversation that Shelley was having with me as a gain, I looked at it as a loss from time taken out of work. So it went something like this. We would be out taking a walk in the park. We live on a park, so we, we, we would like to take a walk for, for fun, for fresh air. Someone would call, take my phone out of my pocket, and I would say, oh, this is a really important call. If I don't take it now, it's money left on the table. So I got to take it. Otherwise, it's a loss. I'm not maximizing my time. And I would take the call, but then it would build up resentment and sadness in Shelley. It would lead to a separation of, of closeness with us, it would, a, a lack of closeness with us because there was a constant pull away from the time that we were spending building bridges between each other it was constantly interrupted by this desire to maximize our wealth. And what we started to realize was we weren't even getting more work done. Because, because I felt that I could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And literally there were times I woke up in the middle of the night and I was you know, doing work because I felt called to it. Because I felt I could work at all hours... I wasn't working as concentratedly as I could. So I was spreading the work out over all hours and I was getting less done than I do now when I know that I can only work between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. And because I've got a limited window, I work super hard in that window. I work as hard as I can in that limited window, get as much done as I can knowing that whatever I don't get done today, I'm gonna get done tomorrow, which is good, but I try to get as much done in that window of work opportunity as I can, because the time is limited. And work expands to fill the time allotted. So I've actually become more productive by working fewer hours. And more importantly, I think, for myself as a human being, as a spiritual being in a physical world, something that we've talked about in earlier episodes of this podcast, we are spiritual beings in a physical world. More importantly for me, I am saving each day from being wasted as opportunity to build with Shelly and to build our family and to build our creative pursuits and to serve God and to serve our souls because I don't want to wake up one day and be 45 years old and say, wow, 
I lost 10 years pursuing wealth, but I didn't create anything else besides wealth. I don't want to be this gentleman across from the table who's rich in finance, but poor in soul. I have a feeling that he wakes up and if he's honest with himself in his quieter moments, he says, I've got a lot of stuff. I've got a lot of money. But I don't have a lot else. I don't have good relationships with my wife, with my kids. I haven't created some of the creative projects that I've wanted to create. I haven't been the person that I imagined that I would be because he was probably telling himself that he'll get around to it one day. But in the short term, he sacrificed those daily opportunities to do the things that his soul was calling for him to do. And when you add day after day after day after day of doing this and you fall into that rote pattern and then you forget that you intended to fulfill the more soulful aspects of your life, the more creative aspects of your life. One day you wake up and it's just too late. And you can always make money. Money comes and money goes. And we always try to save as much money as we can. But we're really also now trying to save time as well as money because time is the most valuable resource. Time is something you never, ever, ever can make up. You can never get it back. You can never, ever have a great idea to make more time, just like you can have a great idea to make more money. The only thing you can do is utilize your time along the way. So what we've started to do is find ways that we can do a little bit of everything every day. Nine to six is work. Everything outside that time is time to tend to the other aspects of our life. Our family, our spiritual needs, our creative needs, our health, our fun. All of these things which are just as important as making money and which actually free us to make more money because we're invigorated, we're energized, we're excited by life. And it's also in, in the times that we're taking a break from the grind of work that ideas come to us. It's really a really interesting concept that we've been thinking more and more about is that it's the times that we're having fun that we're not thinking about how to tackle a specific business problem that the solution presents itself to us because the subconscious mind is always working in the background. And if we allow ourselves to free up the conscious mind to give it a break, that creates space for the subconscious mind to send the solutions to the conscious mind. And that can only happen when we provide space. Space by having fun. 
There's a book called Play. I read several years ago about the importance of fun. It talks about, you know, a golden retriever, a dog that, that so many of my friends have had as a pet. And talks about the dog, in this particular example, being lethargic and lazy and just lounging around. But all of a sudden the dog sees a rabbit and dashes through the field, dashes through the yard, chasing the rabbit, having fun, or chases a frisbee that its owner throws and runs back and forth. And all of a sudden, after all this physical activity, the dog is recharged in the same way that by having fun, by taking a break, we can recharge our whole life. It's not that Play is a waste of time. Play is just as important a component of life as work and leads to just as much productivity as grinding it out 24-7. If you don't give your conscious mind a chance to rest, it gets clogged up. It's like you have to restart your computer every once in a while to free up the random access memory, the RAM. You have to give your conscious mind a chance to recharge. And there's so many fun ways to do this, whether it's doing some exercise, doing some yoga, doing some meditation, having fun, talking, laughing, telling jokes, playing the piano, playing the violin, taking up a new creative passion, whatever it is, you are going to make yourself so much more productive by giving yourself permission to take a break, to have fun, to go on a vacation. And I get it, it's scary to do. It was really hard for me to give myself permission to do it. And I'm still working to give myself permission to go on a vacation in the next couple of weeks and it's been so hard for me to give myself permission to go on a vacation that we came up with a strategy for that and that strategy is we're gonna take a last minute trip by buying last minute tickets somewhere around Thanksgiving around Christmas time and um, renting out someone's house either through Airbnb or another similar site and we're going to do this at the last minute because it's scary for me to plan ahead because that creates so much stress knowing that I'm not going to be able to work during that time. So what we're doing is we're saying we're going to do it. We're going to do it during the week of Thanksgiving or Christmas when the rest of the world kind of shuts down for business purposes but we're not going to put added stress on ourselves by planning it ahead. We're going to do it at the last minute, and that's also going to allow us to take advantage of decreased airfare and decreased hotel costs because we'll basically be filling up unused space that would have gone vacant anyway, so we'll maximize our costs. And we're really look, looking forward to going to Finland or Sweden or a country that we've always dreamed of going, seeing whatever of these uh, countries has 
the best deal at the time. And if we have to switch to another country, whether it's uh, Italy or, or Greece or China or one of the other countries that we want to go to, we're going to do it because our goal is to take a break and to explore. And those of you who know that I spent uh, about uh, 18 months in Thailand, know that I love to travel, that I love to really immerse myself in new cultures, that it brings new ideas to me, and, and that I want to share these travel experiences with Shelly. Know that we're all about exploring and we're willing to kind of just go wherever wherever life should take us and looking really, really forward to that opportunity to do so. And we've found a way to do it that works for us, both economically and in terms of dealing with this fear of missing out, fear of taking a break, which I understand for many of us entrepreneurs that are really, really focused on building a business can be hard, but we know how important it is for us to take a break and to explore. Now, the reason we want to go to, you know, Finland or Sweden or Denmark or one of the Nordic countries is because we've never been there. We don't know anything about it. We want to see what cultural ideas inform these places. What are the systems, the ideas, the the knowledge bases, the foods, the the remedies, the ways of doing business that are really, really cool and great in these places, and how can we bring them back with us here to America and integrate them into our own life? When I went to Thailand, and, and I lived in Thailand essentially for 18 months, I learned that life in other countries can be a lot uh, different paced than life in America. People do work to support and sustain themselves, but they also aren't obsessed with their work in the same way that Americans are because America was largely founded as a business. And if you go back to some of the earlier podcasts and we talk about the economic and cultural history of America, uh, which was in many cases started as uh, charter corporations, as is the case for Massachusetts or Virginia, where business people were essentially given rights to do business on large tracts of land. And in return, they would send back part of their profit to the old country. America was founded as, as a business. It was a vast, open, unexplored space and the Native Americans who were living here were disregarded and the Europeans said, we're going to go and we're going to use this space and do business in this space and make money from this space. So the entire cultural ethic, the mindset was how to utilize this space, how to make money from this space, send it back to the old country or create a life here for ourselves. But in order to create something out of nothing, so to speak. You had to work hard. You had to dedicate your life to 
creating something out of nothing. And that leads to the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful vitality of America as a business place. But it also leads to a mindset in which business can be all-consuming because you're constantly transmuting nothing into something. You're constantly making money out of thin air. I mean, if you look at the industries that have been created in America, whether it started with you know, commercializing the light bulb or you know, transmuting um, fossil fuels into oil, into gasoline, um, or you know, um, basically taking concepts of of engines and and mass producing them as as Henry Ford did with the with the Model T, and creating a whole new industry out of car cars or doing what Silicon Valley has done, which is create whole new industries out of Silicon based chips and all the beautiful offshoots of that like software and and telephones and cellular. These are industries that were literally created out of nothing but the ingenuity of the human mind and the the legwork and and the hard work to transmute those ideas into industries into businesses that takes a lot a lot of lot of work and constant stick-to-itiveness and because the political cultural economic structure of America, which we discuss in some of our earlier episodes, allows for that. People are constantly, constantly striving to do that. And that can lead to forgetting that in other countries, in other time periods, in other cultures, the point of life is not to work, the point of life is to live, and work supports that living. Whereas in America, in many cases, it's reversed. The living supports the work. So in Thailand, it was not uncommon for people that own businesses, that own resorts, and I'm talking about you know the, the people that lived in Thailand, to take a break in the middle of the day. It was very often that I'd walk into a shop and the shopkeeper and his or her family would literally be napping on the floor. They weren't embarrassed. They integrated their work-life balance very differently. Almost all of the shopkeepers ran their businesses out of their home. So they collected goods to sell and they set up a storefront in the front of their home and people would come by and buy stuff from them. And when they needed a break, the pace of life was such that they would take a break. Sometimes I would walk in and they'd be giving each other a time massage. Because in addition to realizing the importance of taking a nap, they also realized the importance of human touch for circulating the blood and for releasing toxins and for increasing flexibility. So they had these beautiful traditions of Thai massage, which you could walk into a shop and the shopkeeper and his or her family would be giving each other a massage. And it, you know, it was a beautiful thing. And I'm sure some people are listening to this and, and I can hear them saying in a very pejorative looking down kind of way, well, 
that's lazy or how could you run a business like that or that's not professional. But it's a different mindset. It's a different mindset. And it wouldn't work here because in America we are used to really channeling every moment of the day towards making money. And if somebody walks into your shop and your culture isn't accepting of these kind of behaviors, you're going to lose customers and it doesn't work here. But the point is that travel is so great because you get to see what other people are doing and how they're thinking and how their culture has some ideas that maybe hundreds or thousands of years ago were part of everybody's culture, but in this unique political experiment that is America, aren't occurring right now. So the the point is not that one culture is good and one is bad. The point is that they're just different, but you can do things within the American context, within the westernized context, to ensure that you gain back some of that balance, that work-life balance. So like uh, Shelly and I have done, we blocked off the hours between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. for work, concentrated, full throttle work. But after that, we tend to our spirit, our physical health, our body, our creative passions. So although we're not mixing it throughout the day as they did in Thailand, we're mixing it at different hours of the day, which are bookending the um, hard and fast working hours. I hope that uh, this was interesting and that this was helpful. It's really, really special for me to be able to share with you some of these ideas about how we hear at Soulmate Seasons, we here in our family are working to save time and money to make our lives as full and as rich as possible so that we can be fulfilled not only as business people but as as human beings and that God willing we continue to be blessed with prosperity, with creativity, with ideas continue to do the work of our maker in spreading light and bringing light to this world Amen would love to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your strategies for enriching your lives. Please, please, please continue to write to us, to send us audio clips. We look forward to sharing them with everyone out there and with learning from you just as we hope you've been able to learn from us. God bless you.